You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. There's a story of a couple in their 90s. They've been married for 45 years, but their money had began to become tight and thinner, and they were worried about how much money they had left. Thanksgiving was coming up, and they wanted their family all to come home for the holiday. They had a son and a daughter, uh, but they didn't want to spend their money to make it happen, and they didn't want to spend much money to make the feast happen at all, in fact. So this elderly man, his name was Stan, he lived in Phoenix, Arizona, as most good retirees do, and he decided to call his son in New York. And he said, son, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are getting a divorce. Forty-five years of time together is enough. The son screamed in response, Pop, what are you talking about? And Stan replied, well, we just can't stand the sight of uh, each other any longer. Uh, neither of us look like what we used to. We don't get along like we used to. Uh, it's not worth staying together. And he continued on. He said, in fact, we're sick of each other. And I'm kind of sick of talking about this. So, you know what? You call your sister in Chicago and tell her. And I'm going to go read a book. Well, anxiously and concerned and confused, frantic, the son calls his sister and tells her the news. And she begins to have an emotional breakdown on the phone and quickly calls her father and explodes on him. And she tells her brother before she hangs up, right, like, in no way am I letting them get divorced. I'll take care of this. So she calls in her fit of rage and rebuke and she calls her father in Arizona and she begins to tell him off the minute he said hello. She went on to say, there is no way you're getting divorced, especially at Thanksgiving. Do not do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother. We're both flying out today so that we can be with you tomorrow. And we will process it then. And we're bringing Thanksgiving meal with me. The dad just remained quiet. And she said again, don't do a thing until you hear me. Do you hear me? Well, the wife was sitting in the background as Stan hung up the phone, and she said, what did our kids want? And Stan hangs up the phone and says, simply wanted us to know that they're coming for Thanksgiving, and they're paying their own fares. (laughs) If bringing people together was easy as that joke made it, we would all have much easier lives. But when we are apart or away from people that we love, there is something inside us that feels like it's missing. Often there are obstacles, significant obstacles that keep us from visiting those that we love or want to live near. Katie and I know this well, right? My family lives here. Her family lives in Southern California. We live here. The truth is that we feel often torn between the two places. There's a reality that both areas, both parents have shifted and shaped us in some ways. And our hearts long to be both with them at uh, Each time, but it's not possible. Even more, the 
cost of taking our family to California uh, to experience that area, to be around family, has become so expensive that we've only done it a few times in our 17 years of marriage. Time and finances are an alarming obstacle, often, that keep us from visiting people we love. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a remark from Paul in the series that we've been looking at in Thessalonians as he writes to the Thessalonian followers of Jesus. His heart aches to be with those that are far off from where he is, and he wants them to understand the care. He wants them to understand the love, the connection that he has with them. In fact, in many ways, the letter we're going to be looking at this morning is Paul simply saying, I want to be where you are. In the 70s and the 80s, musician Michael Jackson began his career in a band known as the the Jackson Five. Good job, right? And, And the Jackson Five was one of the most popular billboard acts. Under the name Jackson Five in 1972, Jackson and his brothers and sisters wrote a song called, I Want to Be Where You Are. This song went on actually to be one of their most covered songs. It may not have been one of their most popular songs, but it was one that was covered the most. And they start singing by saying, can it be I stayed away too long? Did I leave your mind when I was gone? And then the chorus repeats, I just want to be where you are. And then the verse asks, please don't close the door on our future. Though seemingly, I don't know for sure, but I can guess that the Jackson 5 were singing about some long-lost lover. This morning, as we look at this letter in Thessalonians, Paul, Timothy, and Silas are going to mirror some of that same similar language and ideas. They are mentioning that they want to be where the Thessalonians are, that they've worried, that they've stayed away so long that they have forgotten about them, and they probably think he's forgotten about them. And uh, at the end of the day, he's setting up this future view, this future destination, uh, to make sure that they realize and can realign themselves that there needs to be a greater sense of mission at play. He does not want them to close the door on their future by being distracted by what's going on around them, but rather by living in a way to please God. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue our series to the church, which is dissecting First Thessalonians and Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, Paul is writing to church communities uh, that are, are meeting in homes throughout the region of what would now be modern-day Greece. The town has a port, it has an amphitheater, it's a stop, a major stop of trade on the Via Ignatia, the Roman road. And it was a free city. It was a city that didn't have Roman occupation, uh, and though it was largely non-Jewish, the truth is there was a large enough Jewish population that they had their own synagogue, uh, but really this town had become a melting pot of many, many religious ideas and philosophies. And as we read this morning, as we uh, look at the culture around us, we're once again in this kind of moral convulsion that we're experiencing as a society. Uh, There are many ideas and philosophies at play. And here Paul is going to give them certain practices and priorities to uh, know how to live faithfully in the middle of that. It seems that because of the way that this church was passionate 
about living in evangelistic ways, in countercultural ways, in resilient ways, that even though many religions and philosophies were accepted, these guys found themselves on the short end of the stick, and people did not embrace them well. Both the Jews and the non-Jews, as we saw a few weeks ago, have really began to oppress this church. And so, you know, just quickly review. They've, Paul arrives, in, and we saw this in Acts 16, into the city. He spends three weeks investing in them. They only have three weeks to plant this church. They stay at a guy named Jason's house who ends up getting persecuted as a result of, of holding home for them. But in those three weeks, the Holy Spirit shows up, Paul says, with power and with great conviction. And it was in a culture that was seemingly against Jesus' followers. And so Paul begins to get worried that their faith is going to get lost as he's had to evacuate the city and go on the run. So he sends Timothy, and Timothy reports back, those guys are on fire. There's something different about those guys. They're an example for others. Uh, But even though Timothy has reported back good things, Paul is still beginning to struggle uh, with not being near them. He's singing Michael Jackson's I Want to Be Where You Are simply because he not only cares about their faith, but he cares about them. And we saw a couple weeks ago that he said that he integrated his lives. He shared his lives with them in a way that they became family. And so he begins to write 1 Thessalonians and eventually 2 Thessalonians as a way of encouraging them, equipping them, and empowering them to stay on the mission since he can't be there. This morning, we are going to open up to 1 Thessalonians, um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20. I'm going to be reading out the New International Version. I invite you to follow along as I read from it, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20. It's just four verses, but these four verses, ones that I think we can easily overlook if we're not careful, as just setting the stage for what Paul really wants to say, I think these four verses, though, are deeply rich and cannot be ignored. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 20 reads like this. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person or not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For you wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Four short passages. Not deeply theological. Not deeply ideological. Ones that we'd probably skip on the way to see what Paul really wants to say. Uh, But I think there's something here for us to get. Last week we looked at a sermon we call Don't Stop Believing, where where we saw that as a church community, we need to live faithfully and simply and in community together, but it doesn't mean that we withdraw from the world. There's a sense of forward motion that needs to happen. In this passage, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17-20, Paul makes just a few remarks that begin to shift or set the foundation of his next part of the letter. He starts with a continued idea of thanksgiving for their faith, that he's expressing gratitude for their faith, their love, their perseverance, despite their 
uh, challenges. And this shift is then explaining how he longs or wants, needs to be in their midst, to be in community with them. Over the past few weeks, we've seen that he's showed an extended spiritual family paradigm. He wants them to live as an extended spiritual family and that he loves sharing his life with them in their church community. In this letter, he told them he's proud of them, right? And he's for them so far. We've seen that over the past few weeks, but now he unpacks a few really important things. Social, uh, sorry, scholar Craig Keener refers to Paul's letter, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians as kind of a hybrid letter. It's not, it's not a legal argument as some of Paul's are, but this one is part friendship letter, and there's some other things mixed in here. And friendship letters in this day were common. We couldn't pick up the phone and call somebody. We couldn't Snapchat a picture to them. We couldn't uh, send them a a message through Facebook or even uh, a text. And so letters were quite common in this day. And I was thinking this week, you know, growing up, it was often that we would get pen pals in school. Do you guys remember that? There would be some sort of partnership with a school in another country or another area. And we'd begin to exchange letters. We'd get to know each other through letters. And looking back, if I would say someone wrote me a letter now, you know, I think of when I get a birthday card and there's one line in there just says, you know, we like you, happy birthday. And I think, what a waste of money. All right. Do you guys ever feel like that? It's this card that's so thick, it's taken two trees to print this Hallmark card and, and you wrote one line in there. What a waste of Uh, What a waste of paper. You know what I mean? It seems. But in this day, there was a great intimacy. Like it wasn't just like a a token sign of respect or honor. You looked forward to it. You sat on the edge of your seat. I mean, there was an excitement. And when it would arrive in the church communities, I've told you this before, but they would have somebody read it. They would get all the house churches together and read it with passion. They would almost act it out. Somebody that knew Paul best, like if Timothy was in town when this letter came in, he knew Paul the best, so he would have read up and tried to do his best Paul expression. You know, if he was reading, he would walk a little around and he would kind of theatrical, kind of mimic Paul's, I don't know how Paul was, but you get what I'm saying. And he would say, and he who can keep us, right? And he would kind of act it out. And if there were troublemakers, he would say like, and those among you who are doing, and then he would literally look at those people in a way, in a theatrical way that drove the point home. Letters in this day were of great intimacy. In this Craig Keener then says, this part of the letter is definitely following a friendship letter. It's often, almost always in letters of this day, that they would express in some way, Jew and non-Jew alike, that they wanted to be with them in body, not just in spirit. They would always have this issue of, I'm with you in spirit. In today's time, we say things like, my heart is with you, or my thoughts are with you, or my prayers are with you. We try to communicate that that person, even though is afar from us, is still involved at the center of our lives. Keener points out in this letter that Paul does, though, more than just uphold this sort of uh, regular saying, but he puts flesh, meat, uh, deeper meaning into it so that they could actually feel his heart and his intent. 
In the NIV, we see that Paul says that they were orphaned, or some versions will say separated a different way there, or taken from. And the word that he uses, by the way, uh, a word that I have come to enjoy uh, realizing is he's speaking to a word that means mourning and grief. He's beginning to say something that no other philosopher or letter writer would at this time. There was a certain level of intimacy that you just didn't do in letter writing at this time. They would have horrors at today's culture and the way that we talk to each other, right? But in this day, there were certain things you would never put in writing, and one of them is intimacy. And and so when Paul shifts and says, I'm like an orphan, that I've been orphaned from you, that's just a level of intimacy, as weird as it sounds, that they would have never shared. Individuals would often in this day talk about how fate hindered them or helped them, uh, in today's culture, we talk about karma or the way that the universe. Have you ever been around people that say, well, the universe just wanted it to happen? I'm around people that say stuff like that all the time. And I'm like, who is this universe that you speak of? Right? Uh, it's just like there's some intertwined uh, threads into the DNA of the markup that will control everything. And that's the same way that ancients of this time talked about fate. Fate, like the modern idea of karma, could hinder you. It could stand in your way, or it could also open doors. In fact, Paul is giving them, in this letter though, a specific reason of his inability to visit. The same person reason, the enemy that's behind their persecution, their pain, and their problems as a church, is the same person who's behind the reason he can't visit. And he says, it is Satan. Now, the word for Satan there is, means anyone who sets himself up against God, God's plans, and God's ways. Anyone who sets himself up in this day against good things or God things was referred to as a hasatan, or the one who opposes the ways of God. That's why when Peter tries to cast his own expectations on Jesus, what does he say? Get behind me. Satan, right? Because you're standing in the role of one who has set itself up against me. In this day, sometimes empires were also thought as Satan or Hasatan. uh, They could set themselves up against the ways of God. And here in this passage, Paul's referring to the persecution in which he's faced. That has prevented him. He's been unable, he's been orphaned because of his circumstances, his situations, And he is now facing that opposition, realizing he can't get there to live out his mission. It may be that Paul is speaking, some scholars say, to the government and the officials and the Jews that have entrapped him as Hasatan. Or, other scholars say, he is literally talking about Satan or the depiction of evil, demonic empire, right? Uh, Either of them works well in this passage, but what I think is important to notice is that he gives a meaning, evil, as a way that something isn't happening. We should take note that Paul shifts them then to remind them of a destination. He's saying, evil has stood in the way and stopped me from coming there. And he says, but we have this hope, this joy, this crown. And the word that Paul uses for crown is an interesting one. He uses a word that means badge of honor or a, a, a wreath that you would put around your neck, a garland that you would put around your neck uh, as a winner in public games. 
Now, what's interesting, as I said, is that this city where the Thessalonian churches are not only had the Roman road and a synagogue, they didn't only have really good public transportation, I mean, a public uh, sewage and things like that, but and arts. They also were known for having a mini games arena that they would use for philosophers for Olympic-like games. And so Paul uses a language that they would have known well. He says, our crown. Now, you and I tend to think of this. But what, they're actually, what he's actually referring to is when you guys, you know, aren't supposed to be sneaking down to see the public games, and you do, and then that one guy gets uh, wins by beating up everyone else, and they put that thing around his neck, that's what you are to us. He uses a, a language from their culture. And interestingly, this church, the Thessalonian church, is not just Gentiles, but they're also a Jewish population. And the word that he uses also has a separate meaning in Jewish culture. It means still garlands and crowns at the same time. Isaiah, we're not going to look at these, but Isaiah 28.5 and 62.3 would use the Hebrew derivative of this word as a crown. Isaiah 61.3 would use it as a garland that is one. And basically, it was used in the Old Testament to speak of God's future reward, his future fulfillment. And Paul uses a statement here that's saying... Uh, and a statement, by the way, that has great imagery for Jew and non-Jew alike, uh, that his reward, his garland, his crown, his wreath, is simply the way that the Thessalonian church had become resilient in her faith and modeled perseverance. And John, an early follower of Jesus, he says something very similar, by the way. He says this. He says, uh, in, in John 4, 3, he says, I have no greater joy 3 John 4, I said that backwards. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what Paul's saying here. I don't have any greater public legacy or sense of my faith. I don't have any uh, greater reward or trophy or crown than what you guys have been able to do despite all that has worked against you. I think there's important things for us to take through. And I'm just going to briefly work through it and give us three takeaways. First, he says, but brothers and sisters, right away, Paul prioritizes a paradigm as family, right? As a practice of the church. He's saying that we are to be an extended spiritual family. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, when we were orphaned by being separated with you for a short time, in person, by the way, not in thought, uh, out of the intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Easy comment to just skip over, but... Notice what Paul's doing. He's setting up the stage, we're going to see in the next week, where he's going to really unpack heaven. And he's talking about how his destination has been to see them. He's prioritizing that a church community is deeply interconnected in a way that uh, it wants to be face-to-face. You know, in the blessing of the Old Testament, we say, may God turn his face on to you. That idea is that we actually are to reflect God's face to each other. The word for grace in the Old Testament reflects a matter of seeing God's face at the hands and feet of others. Paul is saying we need to be together, to see each other, not just in spirit, but face to face. And he says, for we wanted to come to you, right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, and certainly I, Paul, did again and again. And Paul prioritizes here that what we set our direction around will become our intention. 
He's doing that because of the heaven conversation coming. He's saying, what you prioritize, what you make important in your life, you will seek out to do at all costs. And then he says, but Satan blocked our way. Do you guys ever say things like that in your life, but Satan blocked our way? I don't think that tends to be language. I, growing up, I remember people saying that a lot more, right? I remember people symbolically saying, get behind me, Satan, or uh, that's Satan trying to get at you. And then it seemed like we went into an era where we overutilized and overused those terms, and now we don't talk about it enough. There is spiritual warfare. There's a story in Daniel where Michael the archangel comes to David, uh, Daniel, and says, I would have been here sooner, but I got hung up in the spiritual world. I got hung up with spiritual warfare. You know, as I think about my own life, I told you last week that we had plumbing issues, and as I ran outside just to give God a piece of my mind, I thought he was doing it to me, or I had done something wrong. Do you ever feel like that? That's the, the way we tend, I think, now in this culture as Western people to think that God is doing it to us. Paul doesn't use language like that at all. He says when things aren't working out that are good things that God has ordained and God wants, the thing that's standing in our way is evil, that it's Satan, that it's working, it's, it's things that are setting, and a person, an empire that's setting itself up against God. He prioritizes that there is spiritual warfare at play in the world around us. We're so quick to blame God or ourselves, but Paul prioritizes an enemy, powers and principalities. And he says, for what is our hope, our joy, that the crown, right, that we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. When God comes, what are we going to glory about? You. He prioritizes, as I said a few weeks ago, that our fruit needs to grow in other people's trees. That our success, our fruitfulness, is defined by the way that we help others to win, that we help each other to win. And so here's my four quick takeaways. In this passage, we see this. A healthy and focused church focuses on being with and thinking of each other often. Jesus teaches the importance of this as well. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I loved you, so that you may love one another. But by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So in this passage here, these four verses, maybe we ask ourselves, how can I actively show love and support to my fellow believers in the church community. Two, I'm forgetting to do my points. A healthy church focuses on a defined purpose or destination with an intentional and intense longing. Paul's like, I want to be there. I'm doing everything to get there. And when I can't, I send Timothy, I write letters. He's doing everything to live into that purpose. And Jesus calls us to have a clear purpose too. Matthew 28, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, which is why Paul wants to show up here, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. And I am with you always unto the end of age. And that's what Paul's saying here. I want to be there with you, continuing to help you on the journey. In a way that Paul's concerned with the discipleship of the Thessalonians, we must be a church that's defined with that same message, a message of our individual responsibility to discipleship. We as a church will only disciple as good as we as individuals do. So maybe the question comes up for us, how do I align my actions and desires with God's purposes? 
Three, a healthy and church a focused church focuses on identifying the source of our problems and responding accurately. In another passage, when Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he says something similar about the, this comment of Satan. He says, we're to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against who? The devil's schemes. There he's speaking to Satan as a person for sure, right? The devil's schemes, Diablos. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against against the powers of the world <clears throat> and against the spiritual forces of evil in all heavenly realms. Therefore, put on all of the armor of God. Right? Maybe the question as we read this passage is, what is Satan doing in my life? How can I be aware of the spiritual forces of evil that are looking to hinder my growth or the growth as a church community? And then how do we respond to it? It's not, God, why are you doing this to me? But if it's spiritual warfare, then we pick up the armor of God and we need to pray about it. We need to pray against it. We need to move in acts of deliverance. Lastly, I think we take away from this passage, a healthy and focused church focuses on seeing others succeed. Paul got that from Jesus. In Matthew 20, Jesus says, whoever wants to be Among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, look, I've come to make sure you succeed, to make sure you win. Paul's saying, guys, the only thing I care about when I stand before Jesus is that I've seen that you have won, that you have succeeded. A healthy and focused church community focuses on seeing others succeed. As Laura comes to close us out in worship, I started our time by referencing to Jackson 5. But in the 90s, there was another worship by the leader by the name David Moan, uh, one of my favorite worship leaders. And he wrote a song by the same title. I'm not aware if he was trying to riff on the Jackson 5 or not, but his song was a worship song. And he realized that he'd become so distracted by the busyness of life, the pains, the problems, the persecutions like the Thessalonian church was facing, that he had not maintained intimacy with God. Paul is really concerned with intimacy with the Thessalonian church. But I think he wants that because he wants them to have greater intimacy with God. And so as we close out in song, perhaps you're doing all these things well. And perhaps it's something like that, the the David Moan song, that you realize I'm so distracted by the pains of life or the busyness of life that I've lost some intimacy with God's Spirit. And I I invite you to use this time as a, a, a prayer of confession for that.